the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. Pretty amazing. Today we're going to talk with uh, Robert Walgamuth. You're going to have to check on that, James, because I'm not at all confident that I have it right. But he's the author of Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. The book is published by Moody, and we'll talk with him about that later this hour. By the way, portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. We're also going to bring you the latest on the uh, uh, suspicious packages, explosive of devices that were delivered to prominent Democrats and uh, to CNN. Um, those packages contained at least some, if not all, live explosive devices. So we'll tell you more about that shortly. Well, GOP leaders are urging the Trump administration to reach a third party agreement with Mexico that could stop the migrant caravan heading to the U.S.-Mexico border. President Trump has uh, turned to a surprising source to justify his immigration policy, former President Obama, and his past remarks on illegal immigration. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, in an attempt to quash brewing dissension among Democrats, said she could agree to an abbreviated term as Speaker if her party regains control of the House in the midterm elections. And the Trump administration has moved to revoke the visas of the suspects in the killing of Saudi activist Jamal Khashoggi. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein's scheduled scheduled closed-door testimony before lawmakers today has been postponed. Two House committees were set to question Rosenstein about the reports that he suggested wearing a wire to secret record the president and discussed invoking the 25th Amendment to remove the president from office. Well, that leads story on the possible solution to the caravan crisis. Republican Senators Chuck Grassley and Mike Lee have urged Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen to execute a safe third country agreement with the Mexican government, which would require members of the growing migrant caravan to stop and seek asylum there. Now, the United States and Mexico may come to that agreement. Whether or not those who are part of the caravan will cooperate with it is another matter. The third party agreement will require asylum seekers to make their claims in their first country of arrival. The senators noted the arrangement would also take some pressure off the overlooked asylum system in the U.S., which has been increasingly inundated with claims that judges must adjudicate. Some Trump administration officials have argued that the vast majority of asylum claims are fraudulent or legally dubious. Homeland Security some uh, says that some in the migrant uh, caravan have significant criminal histories from regions including the Mideast. That was disputed by some in the media yesterday when the suggestion was first made by the president and others, now Homeland Security, backing up the idea. Well, President Trump turned to an unlikely source last night to find support for his hardline immigration policy, his predecessor, Barack Obama. He tweeted a 2005 video in which Obama, then a senator, made a statement against illegal immigration accompanied by comments, I agree with President Obama 100 percent. We are a generous and welcoming people here in the United States, Obama Obama says in the 31-second clip, but those who enter the country illegally and those who employ them disrespect the law, the rule of law, and they're showing disregard for those who are following the law. We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked, and circumventing the line of people who are waiting patiently, diligently, and lawfully to become immigrants into the country, end quote. Well, Obama is not the only Democrat cited by the president and his supporters to justify crackdowns on illegal immigration. Another is former President Bill Clinton in his 1995 State of the Union address. Nancy Pelosi, in an apparent bid to assuage concerns from younger rank-and-file Democrats, said she could commit to an abbreviated transitional term as Speaker if her party wins the House majority next month. But she has yet to provide details and still says she'd want to stay through, I don't know, 2020, leaving unclear when and if she'd be willing to hand off the gavel. The current House Minority Leader first floated the idea of a short-term speakership last week. I see myself as a transitional figure, 
Pelosi said. Speaking to the Los Angeles Times, I have things to do, books to write, places to go, grandchildren, first and foremost, to love. But not enough to let go of the gavel anytime soon, should she regain it. Pelosi has long made clear she plans to run for speaker again if Democrats reclaim the majority. But many Democratic lawmakers and candidates have distanced themselves from her, perhaps just for the sake of uh, campaign. But current leadership this year has also been a target to, to distance oneself from, with some saying they'd oppose her for speaker. While the U.S. is revoking visas of some of the Saudi Arabian officials involved in the murder of writer Jamal Khashoggi, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said in a news conference on Tuesday, the United States has identified people implicated in the death, including those in intelligence services, the royal court, the foreign ministry, and other Saudi ministries, and is working to hold them accountable. The State Department is revoking visas, taking other measures in the wake of the ordeal. We're making very clear that the United States does not tolerate this kind of ruthless action to silence Khashoggi, a journalist, through violence. Pompeo told reporters, neither the president nor I, he says, am happy, but he should have said are happy uh, with this situation. Now, how much difference it might make uh, to these individuals that they would not be permitted to uh, travel to the United States isn't altogether clear, but you don't have direct access to them to hold them accountable. This is at least the first response to those events. The head of two House committees announced uh, last night that a planned Wednesday interview with Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has been postponed. Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlot and Oversight and Government Reform Committee Chairman Trey Gowdy said in a joint statement that they were unable to ask all the questions of Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein within the time allotted for today's transcribed interview. They added that Rosenstein has indicated a willingness to testify in the coming weeks in either a transcribed interview or a public setting. Rosenstein was uh, to have been interviewed by Goodlot, Gowdy, and the top Democrat on each committee in a secure room. Many of the questions were to focus on reported remarks by Rosenstein in which he suggested secretly recording President Trump and canvassing members of the cabinet about the possibility of removing him from office. And on this day in 2002, authorities apprehend Army veteran John Allen Muhammad and teenager Lee Boyd Malvo of Myersville, Maryland in the Washington area sniper attacks. Malvo was later sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Muhammad was sentenced to death and executed in 2009. And on this day in 1945, the United Nations officially comes into existence as as its uh, charter takes effect. And on this day in 1940, the 40-hour work week goes into effect under the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Robert Rogamuth, author of Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 17 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in this hour, we're going to talk with Robert Walgamuth. His book is Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. Well, Hurricane Willa made landfall on Mexico's Pacific Coast today, or actually last night, as a powerful Category 3 storm, although you wouldn't know it. We've heard very little about it. Uh, threatening a major tourist resort area, the storm landed near Isla del Basque in the state of uh, Sonolia. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing those correctly. I apologize. With winds of up to 120 miles an hour, according to the National Hurricane Center, uh, during a period uh, uh, special uh, of uh, special advisory. A willa came ashore roughly 50 miles southeast of Mazatlan, a resort city that's home to um, high-rise hotels, about 500,000 people, including many U.S. and Canadian uh, expatriates. Forecasters warned those in the area to not venture out into the relative calm of the eye because dangerous winds in the area will suddenly increase as the eye passes. Torrential rain in the area began uh, yesterday afternoon. Emergency officials said that more than 4,000 people were evacuated from coastal towns and close to 60 shelters were set up before the storm. The federal government issued a decree of extraordinary emergency for about 19 municipalities uh, in those uh, in two of the states. Willa, according to forecasters, could bring 6 to 12 inches of rain with up to 18 inches in some places to part of um, uh, several states there and flash flooding and landslides possible in mountainous areas. So Hurricane Willa uh, made landfall as a Category 3. Well, the FBI said uh, this evening that it had identified five suspicious packages addressed to prominent liberal and Democratic political figures over the previous three days that contained potentially destructive devices. That's how they're describing them. The Bureau said the packages were similar in appearance, and all of them bore the return address of an office building. For Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, the packages were addressed to billionaire George Soros, Hillary Clinton, former President Barack Obama, former CIA Director John Brennan, chair of CNN, and former Attorney General Eric Holder. Now, John Brennan is a, uh, he's on, what do you call them? Uh, he's a spokesperson. He's uh, 
someone they consulted. I believe it's not even CNN. I think it's MSNBC. But nonetheless, uh, he was uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder was also on that list. The FBI said it was possible that additional packages were mailed to other locations, but yet to be discovered. This investigation is of the highest priority for the FBI. So says Director Christopher Wray. And in a statement said, we have uh, committed the full strength of the FBI resources and together with our partners on our joint terrorism task forces, we will continue to work to identify and arrest whoever is responsible for sending these packages. We ask anyone who may have information to contact the FBI. Do not hesitate to call. No piece of information is too small to help us in this investigation. Well, law enforcement officials involved in the investigation said that there are similarities between the packages, and that's led them to believe that a single individual or group could be responsible. In addition to the five packages identified by the FBI, U.S. Capitol Police were investigating a suspicious package that was addressed to Representative Maxine Waters at the Capitol Hill screening facility in Maryland. Waters said in a statement that uh, Capitol Police had told her that her Washington, D.C. office was the target of a suspicious package that has been referred to the FBI. Well, the FBI statement came hours after the package's address to Brennan, an NBC News analyst, arrived at CNN's New York City headquarters, forcing an evacuation of the Times Warner's building in Midtown Manhattan. New York Police Department Commissioner James O'Neill said officers on the scene identified what appeared to be a live explosive device as well as an envelope containing some some kind of white powder, which is now being investigated. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said the packages, uh, the package rather, was an effort to terrorize and said the incident clearly is an act of terror. The package's address to Holder did not reach its intended address, but was returned to the Wasserman Schultz office building in Sunrise, Florida, prompting the building northwest of Miami to be evacuated. Wasserman Schultz, the former chair of the Democratic National Committee, said in a statement that a second office building in nearby Aventura, Florida, was evacuated in an abundance of caution. The police there later said the suspicious device at that location uh, had been examined and determined to be safe. We will not be intimidated by this attempt, attempted act of violence, Wasserman Schultz went on to say. This appalling attack on our democracy, constitutional republic, must be vigorously prosecuted, and I am deeply disturbed by the way my name was used. Today, my staff and I will hug each other and our loved ones tightly, and tomorrow, get back to work serving the people I was elected to represent. Earlier Wednesday, the Secret Service confirmed that it had intercepted two suspicious packages identified as potential explosive devices that were sent to the Obama's Washington, D.C. home and Clinton's residence in Chappaqua, New York. Sources say that the former president, Bill Clinton, was at home in Chappaqua when the suspicious package was found, but that it was uh, screened in the West, uh, Westchester County, uh, not at the Clinton residence. Hillary Clinton was attending a campaign event in Florida for Democrats. A similar device was found in the mailbox of Soros. Estate in Bedford, New York, Monday evening. The alerts also gave rise to a series of false alarms on Wednesday in San Diego. The building housing the offices of Senator Kamala Harris and San Diego Union Tribune were evacuated due to suspicious packaging. But police said later that the packages were merely abandoned property, and a Harris spokesman said the suspicious packages were not addressed to the senator or their office. President Trump condemned the threatening mailings on uh, this afternoon, saying that the acts or threats of political violence of any kind have no place in the United States of America. He was joined by Vice President Mike Pence, who tweeted, these cowardly actions are despicable and have no place in this country. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders added, these terrorizing acts are despicable and anyone responsible will be held accountable to the fullest extent of the law. But House Democratic Leader Nancy Pelosi and Senate Democratic Leader Nancy Pelosi's uh, sidekick criticized Trump in a joint statement saying the president's words ring hollow until he he reverses his statements that condone acts of violence. Of course, that uh, crosses political lines as those kinds of uh, statements have been made on both sides of the aisle and is equally unacceptable by any uh, member of Congress, anyone in the White House, uh, for that matter, anyone. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. And finally, the caravan is still weeks away from arriving at the United States. And despite the recommendation that some agreement be made between the two governments, it's not clear that the caravan would be willing to cooperate with whatever that agreement may or may not end up 
up being. The safest route would take them to Tijuana as it continues across the U.S. border from San Diego. A large caravan that crossed Mexico in the spring and also drew ire from President Trump took more than 30 days to reach Tijuana from uh, the place in Mexico, a city this caravan departed from on Monday. Right now, the closest border crossing to the caravan would be between um, uh, Matamoros, uh, Mexico, and Brownsville, Texas, about 1,111 miles away from the group's current location. But uh, he heading that way is considered a more dangerous route. To date, the caravan has traveled um, about 20 miles a day, largely on foot. If it continues at that rate, reaching Tijuana could take months, and reaching uh, Matamoros could take uh, weeks. The Mexican government estimates 4,500 people. We've heard estimates upwards of 1,100 people are still part of that car- caravan. The group's organizers uh, and international aid groups, including UH, uh, UNHCR, say more than 7,000 people are still headed north. One story notes that nearly two-thirds of Hondurans, or almost 5.5 million people, live in poverty, according to the World Bank. In rural areas, one in every five Hondurans' life is uh, is uh, lived in extreme poverty. Per capita, uh, per capita income averages just $120 per month. The World Bank said Honduras has the highest level of economic inequality in Latin America, which explains in large measure uh, why they are making their way at such peril north. Now, that doesn't mean that it comports with the laws of the United States that permits individuals to enter the country. Poverty is not one of the grounds uh, that the law permits. Asylum um, is often used as a pretext, but nonetheless, there is a real conflict at the border. We'll see what happens between the United States and Mexico, and even if agreement uh, an agreement is made, whether or not that has any impact on uh, the groups making their way north at this point. We're going to take a quick break in a moment. When we return, we'll talk with Robert Walgamuth. He is the author of uh, Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. Also later in the program, I want to let you know what's uh, coming up for the next couple of weeks. As you may know, I'll be flying out of PDX toward India tomorrow, and we'll spend two weeks there. I'll be back on Monday, November the 12th. In uh, in my absence, we have quite an impressive list of guest hosts, and I'll share with you uh, their names and uh, give you something to think about. I think something to be excited about as well. I've got some, some great uh, folks lined up. By the way, tomorrow we begin with uh, Dr. Gary Brashears, who's a professor of theology at Western. He's going to be our first guest host that's coming up tomorrow. So I almost wish I wasn't on the plane. I'd love to hear that myself. But of course, I can, as is true for each one of you. I can always go to kpdq.com and listen to the podcast where uh, interviews and whole shows can be found. So if you're looking for an interview on a book or a conversation on something or an article that's referenced or or something, you can go to the podcast. And again, go to kpdq.com and look for The Georgine Rice Show and find all the important details. Again, coming up, we'll talk with Robert Walgamuth. He's the author of Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 32 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free was written by my guest, best-selling author and speaker Robert Walgamuth. He guides men to understand the lies they will surely face, lies that can cause them loss, pain, ruined relationships, and losing out on the satisfaction that obeying God's word promises. In addition to contemporary examples and stories from his own life, Lies Men Believe offers biblical examples of men who struggled with lies, including Adam, David, Solomon, Job, Jonah, Simon, Peter, and Achan. Well, my guest, uh, Robert Walgamuth, is a best-selling author for over 20 books, including She Calls Me Daddy, the notes to the Dad's Devotional Bible, The Most Important Place on Earth, and What's in the Bible, co-written with the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. Robert Walgamuth is married to Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth. He has two married daughters, two sons-in-law, five grandchildren, and one great-grandson, or rather grandson-in-law. <laughs> he joins us today to talk about a book, well, men need to be aware of, to think about, so that he can avoid making uh, the same mistakes so many of us women as well make. Mr. Walgamuth, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, please call me Robert, Georgine. Good to hear your voice. Thank Thank you. you. Now, I want to clarify, this is not a book about lies that men tell. This is a book about lies that men (laughs) believe. Yeah, that's a great question, of course. This is what this is lies men believe, but maybe sometimes we tell them as well as believe them. So there you go. Mm. I wanted to clarify because men have been beaten up quite a bit lately, and I I, I defend my brothers. (laughs) So I just wanted to clarify that. for you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, great. Well, let me ask you, um, there are different deceptions that men face that um, women don't face or we face differently. How would you uh, describe the difference between men and women when it comes to the enemy who is always 
uh, attempting to deceive us. Uh, well, th- there are some similarities, that's for sure. In fact, this book was patterned after my wife Nancy's book, Lies Women Believe. It was written in 2001 and has sold over a million copies. And actually, we've been married for 35 months. Uh, I don't know if you know our story. I had the privilege of being married yes. for almost 45 years and then lost my wife to ovarian cancer. And before she died, she told two friends that she wants me to marry Nancy Lee DeMoss, but she did not tell me that. So a couple a couple of months after Nancy and I were seeing each other, those friends said, this is exactly what Bobby wanted you to do. Mm. So I became very aware of Nancy's publishing. In fact, I used to be her literary agent in 2003, so we've known each other for a long time professionally. So we were engaged, and I, I think that's when it was, and she said, you know, over the years, uh, authors, men, have come to me and said, there ought to be a lie men believe, because lies women believe, has been so popular, and I'd like to do that. And she said, I, she just never felt clearance to give them the green light. Well, now we're engaged, and I'm an author, as you said. I have the privilege of being an author. And she asked me if I'd be interested in doing that, and of course, I said I would love to do that. So uh, I last summer, not this past summer, but summer before, I spent the summer on our deck behind our home in Michigan writing Lies Men Believe, and she wrote the, the revision of Lies Women Believe, so we spent our summer writing Lies. I'm kidding. I mean, that's, that's what we say. Makes people smile and laugh. You're actually hoping to tell the truth. In fact, as you see, the cover of the book, the largest word is lies, mm-hmm. but the most important word is truth. So this is this is about helping men understand the lies that are spoken or revealed to them in one way or another, but the more important word is truth, as in the truth that I'm free. So that's the way this came to be, and I'm thrilled to be on the phone talking with you about it. One of the things that your title presumes is that there is someone to whom, uh, someone from whom these lies originate, and if we are unaware of that fact, then we can very easily uh, begin to embrace something that is false without recognizing the source. Oh, that's so true. That's so true. In fact, I'll tell you what's really interesting. When, when I started to work on this book, and Nancy and I were commiserating about it, she said that one of the things that she wrote in Lies Women Believe was the fact that women are often deceived into believing lies. Um, but as you know, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. Well, I, I had never spent very much time in that verse, but now I'm going to spend time in that verse because I want to know what what's Adam's story. If Eve was deceived and Adam was not, then what was he? What How did he get into trouble? So it was actually a, a wonderful journey that both Nancy and I went on uh, trying to discover what it was, in fact, that Adam, what happened to him. So here's, and I'd love for you to respond to this. Mm-hmm. Here's what most scholars believe. First of all, we know that the Lord spoke to Adam. God is the one who said to Adam, of this tree you shall not eat, right? And so there's no record of the Lord telling Eve that, so Adam must have told her. So now the picture is Eve and the serpent having a conversation, apparently near the tree, and of course the serpent says, you know, you'll be like God, and Eve repeating what God had told Adam about that tree. Where's Adam at this point? Mm, so here's 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 the conclusion that we've come to, and this this is this isn't just a you know a flip decision. This is something we really studied, prayed about, spoke with smart people who know this kind of thing. We believe that Adam was right there. In fact, it, it's interesting. She took of the fruit and she gave it to him. Well, that sort of makes it sound like he was right there. So huh. let's say we're pretty safe in assuming that Adam was party to this conversation between Eve and the serpent. Right? You following me so far? Yes. So all right. So what was he doing? He was standing there passively, which is one of the things I talk about that's a real danger for men in terms of passivity. But he was standing there passively, and he decided to take the fruit. He would rather have disobeyed the living God than disappoint or anger his wife. So he took of the, of the tree. He took, he took a bite of the fruit. Well, so why did he do that? Or let me ask the question differently. Did he know that he was doing the wrong thing? Well, again, as Nancy and I wrestled with this, we looked at each other and said, absolutely. He absolutely knew that he was doing the wrong thing. He was not deceived. He was intentional about his sin. He knew that he was disobeying God. He knew that God had said, no fruit, uh, this this tree is forbidden, and he went ahead and did it anyway. So here's what I believe, Georgine, here's, here's what I believe Adam was going through his mind. And this is, someday we'll know for sure, right? This is 1 Corinthians 13. We'll see through the glass clearly. But I believe that Adam took that bite, and here's what he did. He decided that he would 
figure this out later. He would cross this bridge somewhere down the road. He was going to do what he was going to do when he was going to do it. Nobody was going to stop him. And later on, he'd figure it out. Well, that, that may not sound like that big a deal in terms of a great revelation. But I'll tell you what, to us, to me, it, it, it was huge. In fact, the whole book stands on the foundation. That's the first chapter called The Foundation. It stands on that idea that men, more often than not, sin with their eyes wide open. Mm. And they decide that they're, someday they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll make a deal. They'll negotiate something. Somehow they'll get out of it. So I talk about David and Bathsheba. If we were able to have a cup of coffee with King David and say to him, now, when you took Bathsheba, and this is probably more like rape than adultery because he was a man of great power. You know, what choice did she have, right? Mm -hmm. So if we were to say to David over a cup of coffee, did you know that you were do doing the wrong thing? What, what would we think that he would say? I mean, this is King David. This is a man after God's own heart. What would he say? He would say, and probably sheepishly, yeah, I, I, I did know I was doing the wrong thing. And when I had Uriah, her husband, killed on the front lines of the battle, I knew exactly what I was doing. So the, the deal with men, and you know, this is, this is, it looks like a book, it's a conversation. It's me and the reader. Maybe we've got a cup of coffee between us on a little table back in the corner of a coffee shop. And I'm opening my heart. There's no microphone. There's no podium. There's no platform. I'm being very vulnerable in this book about lies that I have been exposed to and that I have been tempted to believe. And in some cases that I have believed. And I'm, I'm opening my heart and I'm inviting the guy who's reading this book to open his heart as well. Mm. This is, this is, um, this is a lot of really important stuff. And, you know, I don't want to scare men off. In fact, if you've got a copy of the book there, you see it's formatted in, in a very friendly way. Yes. This doesn't look like some intimidating tome with page after page of nothing but text. It's intended to look very inviting and to welcome readers, men, uh, into the content. And, and, and hopefully, my hope is that this will connect with them in a way that will have a life-transforming impact. In fact, as you know, women are the primary consumers of books, especially Christian books. So let's say the chances are better than not that we have listeners right now, women, who are hearing this conversation and they're thinking to themselves, I have a son, a husband, a neighbor, a nephew, a grandson, who I would love to give this book to. My my admonition would be for those women to buy the book and give it to that man, not at that man. And you understand the difference. That this isn't, okay, Charlie, read this book. In fact, it'd be great, wouldn't it, if they would have been exposed to Nancy's book, Lies Women Believe. And they'd be able to say to that man, uh, this man's wife wrote a book called Lies Women Believe, and it's been a really important book in my life. And it would mean so much to me if you would take a chance and open this book and read it. And, you know, at that point, Georgine, the challenge is mine. The gauntlet has been thrown down. And the challenge for me is to keep that guy from laying the book down yeah, and walking keep him engaged. Let me ask you how Absolutely. destructive deception can be in the life of a man. And for those who are avoiding um, accepting a lie, and for those who have already done so, is there hope of, of restoration? Oh my, yeah. In fact, if you can see the, the list of lies, there are 40 of them. And it took me, I'm going to say, three or four months to narrow this down. It, it could be 400, let's say. But um, we did narrow it down to 40, and then it's by category. So it's lies about God, themselves, sin, sexuality, marriage and family and so forth. And and one of the one of the things that is under this is in chapter four, lies men believe about them. This is lie number fourteen. God could never forgive me for what I've done. Now when I wonder I wonder how many men are living under the, the uh, shadow of that awful lie. That I've done something that God could not forgive me for. And that is a lie. There is no such thing. God's grace is sufficient for every sin that I have or am or will ever commit. That's Jesus' blood and righteousness covers my sin. That's a fact. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. So the, the truth, if that's the lie, the truth is nothing I've done puts me out of reach of God's complete forgiveness. In fact, in the back of the book, you'll see all 40 uh, truths. I've taken all the truths that match the 40 lies, and I've put them all in one section. So a guy could sit down and just read those pages and be very encouraged by the power of God's truth. Not because I said so, but the power of the Word. And, yeah. and uh, the Bible references are under all of those truths. And how freeing it is to finally uh, come to an understanding of the truth of God's tremendous grace. We're going to continue our conversation with Robert Walgamuth in just a moment, but we do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book, Lies Men Believe, and the Truth That Sets Them Free. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Robert Walgamuth. His book is titled Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. And yes, the title 
may seem familiar to you when you're buying that copy for your husband. You might want to make sure you have a copy of Lies Women Believe, uh, written by uh, his mm-hmm. wife. Uh, let's talk about some of these uh, these common lies. Just give us a few, an example of a few of them that men might be able to recognize and relate to. All right. Here's, here's one of my favorites. This goes back to my background. I grew up with a Mennonite heritage. My grandfathers, both of them, were Mennonite pastors. My daddy was a Mennonite pastor. And I heard the word holiness as a little kid. In fact, we went to a camp that was called a holiness camp. So, of course, my image of this camp was boring. B-O-R-I-N-G. Boring. And so I had this image of the kid that holiness was a boring thing. And and I'll tell you, one of the most wonderful truths about God's Word and about following Christ is that holiness is amazing. I used to live in Orlando, Florida. Holiness is better than Walt Disney World. Um, in fact, it's so interesting. God's laws and His requirements, Jesus said, be ye holy, right? For I am holy. God's laws are like, here's a terrible illustration, except I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dog guy. They're like crates when you buy a puppy. You buy a puppy, and good dog trainers know that you put a puppy in a cage and you keep him there and you train him in a cage and the cage does two things it keeps him in and keeps bad things out and sometimes i think believers maybe men especially think of being holy as being incredibly boring and restrict when in fact it's a huge yeah in fact wouldn't you know that um i married a lady who wrote a book called holiness <laughs> don't tell me that god doesn't have a sense of humor yeah i grew up with this awful image of what holiness meant anything but freeing everything including being very restrictive and awful and boring. And my wife has written a book called Holiness, The Heart God Purified. So what I would say is, is for I think for the average man, when he considers following Christ, he may think of anything but living a vibrant, extraordinary, exciting, fantastic life. He might think of some kind of cloistered life or a life that's filled with lots of don'ts, lots lot of hedges, lots of no's. And in truth, when, when Jesus sets us free, that's really what we are. We are free, and by God's grace, we enjoy the freedom that he's given to us within the confines of this thing called obedience and holiness. So that would be one of my favorites for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that freedom is found in the opposite place you'd expect to find it. When you're talking about um, embracing truth and holiness, that freedom can be found there. It's, it seems counterintuitive and certainly countercultural. Right, that's right. That's right. Uh, there's a lot of danger in the open range. You know, actually, that kind of freedom is described in Romans chapter one, right? Where God turns us over to our own devices. And that may look like freedom to some people. You know, no fences, open range. But in truth, it's incredibly um, restrictive and confining and horrible at the end of the day. But God's freedom, with the boundaries that he sets for us in love, is freedom for sure. One of the sections of your book is um, lies men believe about themselves. What are some of the common things that uh, can easily trip someone up if they don't understand and know the truth? Yeah, well, when we were little kids, we received our self-image from grown-ups around us. And some people listening to my voice, to our voices right now, grew up in horrific, indescribable, terrorizing situations where they were told or it was demonstrated to them that they were worthless. And so now now we're talking to a grown-up and they are still struggling with this thing called image, self-image. And as I said, as kids, our image is a gift given to us by people who are older than us, people who are responsible for us, parents, guardians, teachers, whomever. I had a man who was an incredibly gifted editor who worked for my publishing company. And one day he sat down in my office and he said, when I was in first grade, my teacher looked at me and said, you will make nothing of yourself. You're a loser. And he said, that was 40 years ago. And almost every day I struggled. Mm. Now, uh, as a sidebar, that's a huge admonition to those who are listening who teach Sunday school to little kids or who have small children in their home. But all right, so that's, that's an image that somebody might have of themselves. And then they learn that they were worth the blood of Jesus. He died for them. He died to give them an extraordinary, abundant, wonderful life, free from sin and guilt, covered by his righteousness. Now, that fact, and it is a fact, changes everything. That gives me the privilege, the honor of standing straight and realizing that I am, in fact, a son of the living God, a child of God. And he's put me in this family where I have brothers and sisters who love me, care for me, love me enough to hold me accountable. That's that's the church. And that's one of the chapters. Uh, that the church is an essential part of my life as a believer. So, you know, we cover the, the book, let's call it encyclopedic. Mm-hmm. You know, a guy can sit down and like like he's looking at an index, look at 
the a table of contents. You may go straight to the sexuality chat. I guess as many, many guys will do that. And then at the end of the book, there's a website that a guy can go to with a couple of his friends and walk through a discussion guide that will help them have a good conversation, an honest conversation about each of these things and ask the Lord to reveal himself to them as they talk about these lies that they've been having. Now, is this a book that's best read by a man in solitude or um, men who are meeting together, uh, walking through some of these issues? How do you suggest it's best used? Well, I would say yes to that question. <laughs> um, you know, and there, and there are some guys that don't want, at least at first, to be open and honest about their struggles. So those guys, I would say, go through the thing yourself. But even though the book is only two weeks old, I've already heard of groups that are starting up where guys are getting together, some with a pastor, and they're going through this thing lie by lie, truth by truth, and open the, opening their hearts to each other. And already there have been reports of life transformation, which, as you know, as an author, makes makes a man happy, makes a lady happy. So I'm very grateful for that. Well, once again, the book is titled Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. Uh, it's a great book for uh, men and the, certainly the book that uh, I won't call it a companion, but it certainly does help women uh, sort through some of the same issues, uh, can study together and experience the kind of freedom that the subtitle uh, suggests. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome, Georgine. Lord bless you. Thank you for your ministry. We're, we're very thankful. Thank you. All right. Again, Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. Robert Walgamuth is the author. The book is published by Moody. You can find it uh, in bookstores. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, uh, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, well, a number of things, but we'll also uh, hear from Drew Hill, author of Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel. The book is published by New Growth Press. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Coming up later this hour, we're going to hear from Drew Hill, author of Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel. That's uh, coming up in our next two segments. Well, Oregon's school performance ratings have been delayed until after the election. Now, was this calculated to influence the outcome of the election? Well, that's the big question that's being asked as we are less than two weeks away from midterm election day. And won't we all rejoice when the political ads stop? Or, as I mentioned here, before for roughly 15, 20 minutes before the presidential election in 2020 heats up and it all starts up again. Well, that said, the Oregon Department of Education, whose leader was chosen by Governor Kate Brown, has decided to delay releasing its annual school performance ratings until after the high stakes November 6th election. The Oregonian Oregon Live reports the uh, statistical rankings have been in school districts hands since the 4th of October in preparation for the originally scheduled October 25th release date uh, for those ratings to the public. But the department informed school district officials that it would delay the release. Now, the move comes as uh, Governor Brown is locked in a pretty tight race with Republican challenger Newt Bueller, who has uh, said that Brown's failure to improve public schools outcome is his number one campaign issue. So conveniently, if we don't have the uh, most current stats, that uh, takes a little wind out of that argument. At least that's the calculation. Some are speculating. A department spokesman, Mark Siegel, says the release was moved back so it could launch a website to fight chronic absentee and because it's taking longer to handle the ratings on, of schools uh, who had too few students take state tests. So I would imagine an asterisk with a note that mentions both of those things. Website coming, still working on X. Nonetheless, the release date was supposed to be October 25th. That's tomorrow, uh, but it's going to be delayed until after the election. Calculated to influence the outcome? Well, we can speculate about it. It certainly is unfortunate, um, but that seems to be uh, what the Department of Education ahead is sticking with. Meanwhile, a legal complaint against Christine Blasey Ford's attorneys uh, could come down to how Brett Kavanaugh's accuser understood a question during her dramatic appearance before a Senate committee considering the judge's confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court. The media widely reported that Senate Judiciary Chairman Charles Grassley uh, offered on multiple occasions to Ford's lawyers to have committee investigators interview Ford in California, where she lives. She had expressed, we were told early on, a desire to remain anonymous. Well, that was taken from her by some Democratic operative, we don't know whom, when the story was ultimately leaked to the media, and then she followed that up with an interview with the Washington Post. But during the hearing, Ford told the committee, if you were going to come out to see me, I would have happily hosted you. It wasn't clear to me that that was the case. Well, Judicial Watch, which is an ethics watchdog, filed a complaint alleging that Ford's lawyers didn't let the research psychologist and professor know that she had the option of telling her story without a public spectacle. Now, it's hard to imagine that she would not have known since... 
I knew, James knew, it was pretty widely reported, but that's not quite the same as being told by your attorneys that this is actually an offer being made by the committee. Says Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton in a formal statement, we are concerned that ethics rules were violated by Dr. Ford's attorneys during the Kavanaugh confirmation and took action to get accountability. Well, Judicial Watch filed the complaint against Ford's lawyer Deborah Katz, Lisa Banks, and Michael Bromwich with the D.C. Courts of Appeal Board of Professional Responsibility. The complaint says of the the three lawyers in part, it appears likely that they knowingly subordinated their client's interest in avoiding the publicity of a Senate hearing and avoiding travel to Washington, D.C., to the desire of Democratic senators on the committee to have such a hearing take place in Washington, D.C. Their failure to inform their client of the offer to have committee staff investigate Dr. Ford in California was dishonest at worst and careless at best. Either way, it's inexcusable and raises substantial questions about their character and fitness to practice law. It warrants a full investigation by the Office of Disciplinary Counsel. Now, again, this is a a complaint against uh, legal counsel and not the client herself. Bromwich's law firm provided uh, an on-the-record response, it said, was from Katz, Banks, and Bromwich, the three attorneys named in this complaint. In the prepared statement, the lawyer said, and I'm quoting, we have reviewed the disciplinary complaint filed by Judicial Watch with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It is a shameful effort to politicize the bar disciplinary process. The claim that we failed to advise Dr. Christine Blasey Ford of the various options available to her in connection with her allegations of the judge, now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, sexually assaulted her in the early 1980s is completely false and without merit. Dr. Ford was advised of all her options and made her decisions based on the information we provided her. We were never told that Senator Grassley was willing personally to fly to California to meet with Dr. Ford, and that is how she understood his ambiguous question at the hearing. The suggestion that we concealed relevant information from her or manipulated her into doing something that was contrary to her wishes is utterly false, end quote. Now, it did seem, for those who actually witnessed the hearings and her response to the question, that she was taken by surprise that there was any offer for uh, lawmakers or their representatives to have addressed her directly there in California. So it strains credulity just a bit. Uh, But nonetheless, it may have been that she misunderstood the question. Now, she is a Ph.D., a very competent uh, woman. Again, a bit hard to believe that she would have misunderstood the question. But nonetheless, that's the response from the three attorneys. Well, the Senate Judiciary Committee reached Ford's lawyers on three occasions to inform her that investigators were willing to travel to see her. On September rather 19th, a letter said committee staff would still welcome the opportunity to speak with Dr. Ford at a time and place convenient to her. On September 21st, committee staff sent an email to Kat saying that Grassley has offered the ability uh, for Dr. Ford to testify in an open session, a closed session, a public staff interview, and a private staff interview. The chairman is even willing uh, to fly female staff investigators to meet Dr. Ford and you in California or anywhere else to obtain Dr. Ford's testimony. Grassley made a similar assertion on the 21st of September in a tweet. Now, on September 22nd, staff wrote again in an email to Ford's lawyers that committee investigators are available to meet with Dr. Ford anywhere and anytime if she would prefer to provide her testimony outside of a hearing setting. Rachel Mitchell, the Arizona prosecutor who questioned Ford during the televised committee hearing on the 27th, asked about her stated reluctance to fly to Washington for a hearing. Mitchell at one point asked Ford, was it communicated to you by your counsel or someone else that the committee had asked to interview you and that um, uh, they offered to come out to California to do so. Bromwich objected to the question, claiming Mitchell asked about a privileged conversation. Ford eventually answered, saying, I just appreciate that you did offer that. I wasn't clear on what the offer was. If you were going to come out to see me, I would have happily hosted you and had you had you um, uh, had been happy to speak with you out there. I just did, uh, did not. It wasn't clear to me that that was the case. Well, Judicial Watch cited two rules of the rules of professional conduct, followed by the D.C. Bar. Rule 14A, a lawyer shall keep a client reasonably informed about the status of a matter and promptly comply with reasonable requests for information. And Rule 14B, a lawyer shall explain a matter to the extent reasonably necessary to permit the client to make informed decisions regarding the representation. And Judicial Watch is uh, arguing that that was not, neither in fact was, the case in this case. We'll see where, uh, where that leads, but at this point, the complaint has been filed. And U.S. stocks posted sharp losses today, reflecting concerns over corporate profit outlooks and geopolitical tensions. The selling picked up during the final hour of trading with the Dow Jones Industrial Average closing near session lows. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq finished in correction 
territory. The Dow tumbled 608 points, or 2.4 percent. The S&P 500 dropped 84.6 points, about 3 percent. The tech-heavy Nasdaq was down 329 points, or 4.4 percent. Investors uh, digested earnings reports from the likes of Boeing, AT&T, and UPS. Dow member AT&T shares tumbled after uh, quarterly profits rose less than expected, and UPS also dipped uh, as investors mulled the impact of a trade war. Still, Boeing maintained its gains after the plane maker topped expectations and boosted its profits and revenue guidance. Well, additionally, investors were also watching reports of a series of suspicious packages being delivered to CNN, the home of Bill and Hillary Clinton, former President Barack and Michelle Obama. This after billionaire George Soros also received something similar. A suspicious package was reported um, to other addresses as well. Microsoft, along with carmaker Ford and Tesla payments, uh, processor Visa, life and health insurer Aflac, and home appliances giant Whirlpool were due to report their earnings after the closing bell, which may uh, at this point have been done. May have been done. We'll leave it at that. Well, the U.S. has taken its first step in punishing Saudi Arabia, including revoking visas of those suspected to be involved in the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said, we have identified at least some of the individuals responsible, including those in the intelligence services, the royal court, foreign ministry, other Saudi ministers who we suspect to have been involved in Mr. Khashoggi's death. Uh, Pompeo told reporters, we are taking appropriate action, which includes revoking visas, entering visa lookouts and other measures. Other punishments are being looked into by the state and treasury departments, including global uh, Magnitsky uh, sanctions, which would apply to those who've committed gross violations of human rights. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Drew Hill, author of Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel Great Idea. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, breaking news story, the Oregon school's chief has reversed the decision and the school performance ratings will be released today if they haven't already uh, been released. The Oregon school chief, Colt Gill, acknowledging the large public backlash, reversed his decision to delay release of the Oregon school uh, ratings report uh, until after the November 6th election. His department released the ratings within minutes of his announcement, but the Oregon Department of Education released them in a manner that only allows the public to see one school's data at a time. So he's going to leak it out very, it's going to be kind of a drip, drip. His decision followed the revelation that uh, we talked about earlier in the program, uh, initially in Oregon Live and the Oregonians front page, uh, that his office had completed the rankings but decided to delay after uh, their release until after the November 15th uh, election, or rather until the, uh, the week of November 15th, which would fall after the election. Uh, so now it's actually a bit early because the uh, initial release date was supposed to be the 25th, this being the 24th. So, um, uh, however, it it's being released in such a manner that it will make it difficult to know the full weight of the report as it's being dripped out one school at a time. Anyway, that's an update on that story. Well, as I've been discussing throughout the uh, the week, I am going to be traveling with a ministry partner here in the Portland area and we'll be traveling to India. I'll be gone from, well, tomorrow through the 9th of November. And while this is a great uh, adventure and I'm looking forward to seeing what God has in store, I'm not at liberty to go into much detail. I will say that um, your prayer are welcome. Uh, I am uh, a great believer in the sovereignty of God and that he orders the steps of those who uh, belong to him. And I am uh, entrusting my life, as is the case every day, to him over these next two weeks. Um, things, uh, well, I'm just going to leave it at that. Things that we're hoping and praying for, I'm confident God will do, um, not only in giving us an opportunity to be a salt and light, but to be uh, encouraged along the way. Uh, but while we're um, absent, well, I'm absent. I want to let you know what's coming up the remainder of the uh, this week and the next couple. Tomorrow, I'm looking forward to welcoming Gary Brashears. Dr. Brashears is a professor of theology at Western. He's going to be our first guest host, and that's coming up tomorrow. I mean, you want to start out with a bang. Uh, we're going to start out with one. We're going to maintain that level of, of uh, proficiency uh, and insight right up until um, our last speaker, our last last guest host. And we'll let you know in just a moment who those are. But tomorrow, Gary Brashears, Dr. Brashears, professor of theology at Western, will uh, be our guest. Now, on Friday, we're going to take a, a brief break, and we'll share the best of the 
Georgine Rice Show. Um, and uh, the guest hosts will continue after that, starting next uh, Monday. Pastor Greg Allen will be hosting the program. He's the pastor at Bethany Bible Church. He's also an adjunct professor at Multnomah. Mike Lee, who's the director of local ministries here at KPDQ and does a great job connecting uh, churches and local ministries to um, the prospect of broadcasting. In fact, I'm sure he'll talk a bit about that. If you've ever thought about, I'd like to host a program. Our church would like to have a show. He's the guy to connect you to do that, but he also uh, hosts a program that gives him an opportunity to interview difference makers, and I'm sure he'll uh, be sharing some of those great interviews with you when he hosts the program. Dr. Michelle Watson, who is an author, she's also the host of The Dad Whisperer, a program heard on Mondays at 2 here on KPDQ. She's going to be guest hosting uh, the program. James Blend, along with Justin Mansfield, who's the operations director, are going to invite a special guest in studio. Now, I have it on good authority that that special guest may in fact be a comedian. I don't know a name. I don't know a date. I don't know a time. I don't know anything except that. It's going to be fun. And uh, James and Justin will co-host the program along with their special guest. Rana Mall, who is the executive director of Transitional Youth, will also be one of the guest hosts in my absence. She is a woman of faith. She's worked with homeless teens in our community uh, for a number of years, has had quite a a background of her own that has produced in her um, a level of compassion and commitment uh, that I see in few people. She has a, a real heart. She is now the executive director of Transitional Youth, and she's going to be one of our guest hosts in my absence over these next couple of weeks. And then James Blend is going to uh, take the chair, and he'll provide some election coverage. He's going to have uh, guests in studio, some to focus on uh, local races, others to uh, broader view. Among the guests will be uh, uh, Jason Williams, and uh, he'll be focusing on some of the local races and ballot measures and so on, and there'll be others to take the national perspective as well. Joanne Fuso, who is the director of Forward Edge, will be uh, among the guest hosts in my absence. And uh, he's been in ministry for a number of years and does some great, uh, great work uh, around the country. In fact, I was planning, Dan Rice and I were planning to travel with Forward Edge this last summer, I guess it was, um, uh, when they made a trip to Cuba. It was sort of a a door opening uh, adventure and Dan Rice's heart uh, would not permit him to travel. And so we weren't able to travel with him. But I have such great respect for Joanne Fuso personally and uh, for the work of Forward Edge. I'm looking forward to giving you the opportunity to hear more about that work and to hear from some of the incredible people that uh, he works with, as well as Joanne Fuso himself. And then Clark Tanner will round out the uh, uh, the class of 2018. He's the regional director of Pastor Serve currently, and he represents the Pacific Northwest. He also served as senior pastor for a number of years, 20 plus years, of Beaverton Christian Church, and he'll be a guest hosting the program as well. So you've got a great variety of uh, voices from different perspectives that all share a common faith. So I'm looking forward to giving you the opportunity to hear from them. And um, I, I know you're going to have a great time listening to uh, to these guest hosts. Once again, tomorrow on the program, our first guest host, Gary Brashears, Dr. Brashears, Professor of Theology at Western. So that's going to be a really, really good show. Well, we are out of time. want to thank you for listening to The Georgine Rice Show. want to thank James Blend for not only producing and engineering today's program, but for really uh, holding the reins on the program for the next uh, couple of weeks. I appreciate uh, the work that that requires. And I have to tell you, it means that he has a lot more uh, responsibility in making sure things progress at pace. So I appreciate, James, your uh, skill and willingness to do that. So planning on being back in studio on Monday, November the 12th. If you think of it, say a prayer for uh, for my safety and the safety of my fellow travelers. And we'll tell you more about it on November 12th. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guest, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.